Well, a few weeks back, a, a massive earthquake hit Mexico, and, and there's been a few, I think two pretty big ones after the fact. Not even aftershocks, just subsequent earthquakes. And as I thought about that, and I thought about kind of an illustration to kick us off, I just want to be careful. I, I don't mean to diminish what they're going through by using this as an illustration. I'm not trying to diminish what they are going through in Mexico. It's a horrible tragedy. Uh, and of course, with the hurricanes, there's others as well. But there is an aspect. I remember there was a news story where there was a little girl that was trapped under a school that had collapsed. And for a few days, they were trying to find and get to this little girl. I think they had found her on their scanners. They had heard her, and they were trying to reach her. My understanding is eventually when they got to the point where she was at, it turned out she didn't exist. She wasn't actually there. Something was wrong with the scanner. It showed a false sign. Um, So... She's okay, I guess, in that sense. She just wasn't there. Praise God, I suppose. Maybe the Lord just took her. I don't know. But imagine this. Imagine a person trapped under a building that has fallen. And the person is pinned down. And and is in that place for hours. And the hours turn into a day and then two days. That person has struggled with all of their might to get out from the building. They've tried everything they can and they are utterly and completely exhausted. No strength left. And they're crying out with their last breaths, help me. And a rescuer hears this person. And they get other rescuers together and they say, we've got to get this person out. There's someone there under the rubble. We can get to them. And so they have a quick meeting as rescuers. It's a very difficult situation. How can they rescue this person? The person is completely stuck, is in pain, and is obviously terrified. And so the rescuers come up with a plan. They get a case of energy drinks, Red Bull. And they're able to pass it through an opening in the rubble to the person. And they say, here, drink this. It will give you the strength and the energy you need to crawl out from the rubble. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine being that person and thinking, I've already done everything I can. I have exhausted every resource and I am just as stuck now, if not more, than I was when this happened. I am in more pain now than I was when this happened. And now what you're doing is telling me, try harder and here, take this. It will help you in your efforts. Now, I hope to us, this sounds ridiculous. I hope we look at this situation, and again, I'm not trying to make light. I know none of the rescuers would have done that, okay? But here's the thing. Throughout Christian history, we have done exactly that. As we look at grace today, we have to look at and will be looking at the error in the teaching of grace that developed over time that saw grace as a spiritual pick-me-up and enablement by God to help us do better and live better and be more holy and more righteous. We're going to look at Luther's response to this. And we're going to look at Scripture's response to this. And then next week, we'll go back and look more fully at what Scripture teaches about grace. And then look today at us, even, I think, apart from a tradition that teaches in this way, 
but still how some of those ideas and those thoughts creep in and how we need to be challenged by this idea of grace alone. Now, if we're going to understand grace, we must first understand the problem. There we go. The problem. And here I want to bring up Luther. We've talked a lot about Martin Luther, and again, I'm not trying to lead you to worship Luther. That would be wrong. We're not using Luther as some authority that can be or is without error. That would be wrong. Luther made a lot of mistakes in his life. We'll talk about them later on, probably in the final sermon. Um, He was a broken person. He was a sinner, just like us. And yet God used him in powerful ways. And one of the most important aspects of the Reformation was this particular doctrine of grace alone. Grace alone. That we are saved only by the grace of God. That's what grace alone means. Now let's consider the problem, and specifically the problem as Luther saw it in his day, and hopefully you'll see some crossover to our struggles today. Several years before the Reformation, 1517 was kind of the beginning of the Reformation when Luther posted his 95 Theses, but several years before that, he was teaching at a Roman Catholic institution. He was a a professor, he was a monk, he was a scholar, a wonderful teacher. And he taught to his classes that salvation is by grace. And everybody nodded and smiled and said, absolutely. And the Roman Catholic Church in that day would have had no problem with that. That was their teaching. You are saved by grace. But he would clarify. This is a quote from some of the things he would teach. Hence, the teachers correctly say that to a man who does what is in him, God gives grace without fail. God bestows everything gratis, that means with grace, and only on the basis of the promise of his mercy, although he wants us to be prepared for this as much as lies in us. You see the subtle distinction there. God gives you the grace that enables you to follow him, but he does so because you are putting in the effort. So you give the effort, he rewards it with grace, and because he gives you grace, you can therefore put in more effort. Now the muddy question in that idea is, What does your salvation depend on? Yourself and your effort or God and his grace? Now that might seem like kind of slicing theological hairs, but it absolutely wasn't for Luther. This troubled him to the core of his being. See, he had been taught the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine at that time, which was going through some changes, but it was saying that grace enabled us to live righteousness so that we can make ourselves righteous and holy. Now, again, we have to understand what the problem is. In their idea and in Luther's mindset, sin was primarily a spiritual laziness. You just weren't trying hard enough. And nobody was able to try hard enough. If we could work and try hard enough, then we would be acceptable to God. But we're spiritually lazy. And that laziness needs to be overcome. And so God gives us grace 
to overcome our laziness. So now our sin is not holding us back. We are able through the power, the the influence of God's grace to do the work that we should do to be righteous and holy. Now again, this is kind of the Red Bull understanding of God's grace. It's an energy drink. It's, It's a spiritual energy drink to light a fire under you to enable you to do what you should be doing. But see, here's the problem. Luther understood his own sinfulness. And so he he had this idea of spiritual laziness and he had to work harder and God was giving him the grace to work harder, but he felt like no matter how hard he worked, it was never, ever enough. He became a monk for that very reason. Well, surely, if common people are struggling with this, a monk has given everything to God, surely the monk would get the most grace and should be the most holy and the most righteous. But he found no satisfaction in it. He didn't and wasn't able to say, I know I'm accepted by God because I'm holy. Because he still saw in his heart of hearts that he wasn't. He was still a sinner. We've talked in the past about his long confessionals. Long hours upon hours spent in the confessional booth coming up with any errant thought, any errant deed, any errant motive to tell the priest so that they would be forgiven because if he missed any single one, he could be condemned for that thing that he failed to confess. He would leave the confessional booth only to return within 15 or 20 minutes and start another long session because he was so afraid that he had missed something. Luther was a very good He worked hard. I think in many ways we can consider him like the Apostle Paul who said as a Pharisee he worked harder than any of the rest of them. Luther took Catholicism to its logical conclusion. He worked. He took what he perceived as the grace of God that enabled him and he put forth his effort and he worked harder than I would guess any of us ever have on his own personal righteousness. Luther would later state, it's true, I was a good monk. And kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out on this. For if it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death, what with vigils and prayers and readings and other works. But listen to what he says. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I have always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. He could never get to the point of saying, God accepts me. I'm I'm righteous. There was always this feeling of, what if on the day of judgment, I just don't measure up? What if I didn't live it out the way that I should? Luther worked hard. He drank the spiritual Red Bull of God's grace as best he could. He worked it out in his day-to-day lives as best he could. And yet, the more he studied and taught the Word of God, the more he understood the depths of his sin and he saw how foolish his working was. And it could never overcome the problem of his sin. One of the issues that came up was the concept of free will. Because in their understanding, the understanding Luther was taught and that was taught in the Catholic churches of the day, 
You had the ability to choose the right thing. You just needed God's help to do it. A man by the name of Erasmus, a a Greek scholar, um, who had a profound influence on Luther because of his Greek translation of the New Testament, and was in some ways a friend of Luther, although that changed over time. But in, I'm sorry, 1524, Erasmus writes a, a book called On Free Will. And he taught in that book that we can and should live righteous lives enabled by God's grace. We have the ability to do it. God helps us. This is the Home Depot theology. You can do it. God can help. The next year, in 1525, Luther publishes the book that would change in so many ways the direction of the teaching of grace. That, that really brought it all together, and it was called On the Bondage of the Will. And in that book, and Luther considered it even later in his life, probably his greatest work. And he, In that book, what he said was, we are completely enslaved to sin. If our righteousness and our holiness are dependent on our free will, our ability to bring glory and honor to God, our ability to root out sin in our lives, we will always, 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 by necessity, fail. If we're only lazy, and we need to work harder, then we have to choose that enabled by God. But if we are trapped by sin, in bondage to sin, and unable to put forth that effort or make that choice, then we are stuck. Luther said the problem was, and he's really echoing scripture here, the problem is not that we're lazy, although that may be true. The fundamental problem is that we are dead and lost. Scripture does not portray the sinner as merely unable to follow God. Or, or lazy, too lazy to follow God unless they would just put forth the effort. Scripture portrays the sinner as absolutely dead and lost in their sin. We are enslaved to sin. Our free will is captive to, distorted by, twisted by sin. We cannot truly want to be righteous or choose to make ourselves righteous. And Luther writes that because of the problem of sin, rightly understood from Scripture, any hope that we have of salvation must be started by and carried out by God and God alone. And the way that God does that, the way that He takes a sinner and makes them righteous, declares them righteous, saves them, is by grace. Undeserved? Because the dead person can't deserve life. The sinner cannot deserve holiness. They only deserve death and wrath. So it must always be undeserved. But everything about our sin makes our own choice impossible. So it must be of God. He also writes, and here we see another one of Luther's complete break with his Catholic tradition. And and we'll pick this up again next week to challenge ourselves He says, if in our salvation we are making any efforts to add to what Christ has done, if we are claiming any merit in and of ourselves for why we are saved, then we are denying Jesus Christ. And so the tradition that he was raised in, 
the tradition some of you were raised in. And quite frankly, a tradition that has even crept into the Protestant church. God has done his part. You do your part. That denies the overwhelming power of the cross of Jesus Christ. We come to God with nothing. You might say, well, that's great. Probably wouldn't say that's not so great. But let's look at Scripture. Because, okay, so Luther taught this, but is it in Scripture? Now again, next week we'll deal more in depth with what Scripture teaches. But I just want you to see this problem from Scripture. I'll put them up here, but you're welcome to turn in your Bibles. John three nineteen to 20. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Is that the picture of somebody that just needs a spiritual pick-me-up? No, this is the picture of the cockroach on the floor that when the light turns on, we scatter. We say, I hate the light. It, it hurts. It burns. It shows me things I don't want to see. I am purposefully putting in my effort to run away and hide from the light. That person doesn't need just a little spiritual pick-me-up. They need completely changed. Romans 3.12, this, there we go. Romans 3.12, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. Not just minor issues lacking in their lives, worthless. There is no one who does good. Do you hear the testimony of Scripture? You know, this idea that, well, when I get to heaven, God will weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds. This blows that out, out of the water. There is no one who does good. If you are trusting in your good deeds for your acceptance by God, if you are trusting, if we are trusting, if anyone is trusting in their good deeds when they stand before God to say, but God, I did so much, I think he'll pull out Romans 3.12 and say, man, I warned you. It's right there. There's no one who does Good. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll look at 3 as well, as for you. Now again, understand the picture that the Bible gives of the sinner. And compare that with an emphasis that we just need to work a little bit harder. Look at the picture of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then verse 3, all of us, you see that all there? Not just the special spiritual ones, or not just the really sinful ones. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So, according to this passage, if we just put in a little more effort to make ourselves a bit more holy, Is it grace that we get? Do we deserve grace? Scripture says no. In our sinful state, if we are claiming in any way, if we are hoping to get from God what we deserve, we deserve wrath. 
So let me change my opening illustration because now that even as I'm preaching through this, I'm thinking it's a bad illustration. Because imagine a person stuck in the rubble and they've already died. And they're trying to get them out. And they pass through the Red Bull. Here, drink this. Just, just try a little harder. The person's not even able to hear them. They're not able to grab the can and open it. They're not able to drink it. They're not able to get out because they're already dead. What they need, and what is impossible in our world, but possible with God, is somebody to reach in and start their cold heart. And bring them back to life. And no amount of of encouragement, or showing them the steps, or giving them some spiritual pick-me-up, will help them out. They need to be brought from death to life. That's the problem. We need to be rescued, not merely encouraged and pointed the way. And so we come to grace and grace alone. Grace alone is the solution. And by grace alone, what we mean is that it's not grace that cooperates with us or that we cooperate with grace. We are dead, we are lost, and it is only by the grace of God that we can be saved. Now, don't get me wrong. We'll talk next week as we look at faith. It is not grace that stays alone. We don't just punch our ticket to heaven, live however we want, and say, well, I'm going to heaven. I accepted Jesus Christ when I was six. Live like a sinner every day since, but I think I'm saved. We're not talking about that kind of faith and that kind of grace, and neither was Luther. Nobody in their right mind that reads Scripture can conceive of grace in that way. Protestants have always been accused by that. It is not what we teach. It is not what Scripture teaches. Grace changes us. Luther wrote this way, that grace was more like a wedding. Now, now follow me here, because I think this is a powerful picture that he, he paints. He says, imagine a king. And the king chooses a bride. I want to be careful. I'm not going to use the the words or the the ideas that Luther uses. But it's, it's a peasant bride of ill repute. Okay, you with me so far? Okay, we got the kids here, so I'm trying to keep it PG. Okay. And the king decides to marry this peasant. What happens at the moment they become married? If that bride has any debts that she's accumulated, guess whose debts they now are? The king's. He takes it on. Any kind of smear in her reputation, where does that get transferred to? The king. Now what happens to that peasant woman? The moment of that wedding, she becomes the queen. Now, does that mean the next day she's going to wake up and act all regal and, and you know, deal with the, the royal court in the way that she should and foreign dignitaries and she'll always leave her sinful ways behind? Will she always act queenly? No. She's going to blow it. And so hopefully, in that relationship with the king, as the king shows her unconditional love and grace and lives with her and loves her the way that he should, she will, over time, become more queenly. But she will never, ever, Luther uses this term, this is not me, she will never become more of a queen than the moment she married the king. She is a queen forever. Do you understand the significance of that? The moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
Through God's grace, He takes Christ's righteousness and applies it to you. And you will never, in your life or for the rest of eternity, be more righteous in God's sight. That righteousness remains forever and nothing takes it away because it depends on grace and grace alone. Will you struggle with sin? Yes. Will you grow in living day-to-day righteousness, that, that identity that God has declared for you, that He's bought for you? Will you grow in it? Absolutely. But does God accept you anymore because of that? No. The acceptance is there forever because it is by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And he goes on to talk about good works. But the salvation starts here. It is by grace that the dead person is brought to life. It is by grace that the person stuck in the rubble is rescued. It is not by their own efforts. Titus 3, 5-7 says this, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done. Now, again, picture what Luther was taught. Picture what some of you were taught. Picture even some of the things that go on in Protestant Bible studies. Well, God saved me, and now I'm just working to do my best to keep Him happy. He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done. We bring nothing to the table. We can't. But because of His mercy... He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, which He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by grace, what a phrase. That means the judge declares you righteous, not based on any merit of your own, not based on anything you bring to the table, but simply and only and alone on grace. That's grace alone. Justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. In the Catholic Church, in the teaching, grace had become a part of what God did. It was kind of a subset. It was sort of like His humor or His creativity. It was just one of His personality characteristics. And what Luther saw as he studied Scripture was that grace was not just one of God's personality characteristics. It was the very aspect of the presence of God towards sinners. It is His grace. And what he said was, and what he saw in Scripture is, when we are asking for grace, when we're looking for grace, when we're accepting grace, it is not something separate than God. It is actually God Himself we are accepting. And that is always, follow this, through Jesus Christ. Grace is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's grace. You cannot separate the grace of God from Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. You cannot do it. In Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Paul writes this, What is more, I consider everything a loss. He's talking about his own righteousness, all of the things he tried to do to make himself righteous, just like Luther. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them garbage. That is a very polite word for what in Greek is not a polite word whatsoever. I consider them garbage. Something worthy to be flushed down a toilet, thrown onto the trash heap. That's what he considered all of his own personal righteousness. That I may gain Christ. He says, all this righteous stuff, I will throw it away because of Jesus Christ. I'd rather have Christ than the mounting heap of what I thought was goodness for me. Get rid of it and give me Christ. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Luther understood that the teaching of the Catholic Church actually denied the power of the cross by saying we needed to cooperate with that, that we had anything to add to the cross of Jesus Christ was to say that the cross itself was incomplete and we needed more. Now you might be saying, wait a minute. You're taking that out of context. You're reading into that too much. Again, my goal in these sermons is not to bash Catholicism. I want to make that very clear. It's not my goal. But we are in the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It was Luther's protesting and many others against the Catholic Church. We're looking at it in that context. And I hope by looking at it in that context, we're seeing ways we still struggle with these things, even if we're not in the Catholic Church or from that background. But in case you think this is either not true or not true today, listen to this from a Catholic website. Now, I shudder a little bit there because I think, man, there's a lot of Protestant websites if people quoted from. I wouldn't want to identify with that. Okay, but this is called Catholic.org, so I'm thinking that's pretty official. I don't know. That's the official? That's okay. That's like the Pope's website. Does he blog on there? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I I pulled some quotes. So just listen to this. As Catholics, we agree with all Christians that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to take away the sins of the world. He was crucified and died to fulfill this duty. The fact that Christ suffered and expired in the worst way imaginable serves as a lesson that our sins are no small thing. Now, I I agree with him there. If you want to know the gravity of your sins, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to his sufferings. There's a reason that Catholics have the crucifix with Jesus still on the cross. It portrays his sufferings. That's good. Indeed, our salvation is the result of a willing sacrifice by the very Son of God himself who chose the ordeal because he so loved the world. That's good. That's grace. Therefore, he talks about the Protestants and the empty cross. He says, the empty cross represents the light version of the death and resurrection of Christ. However, Catholics are not light Christians in any sense of the word. Catholic tradition is steeped in the fullness of commitment. Look no further than to religious vocations to recognize this. Many religions or, uh, take lifelong power or vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience and spend their entire lives in absolute service to the church. So they're saying, we Catholics, we take commitment serious, and, and that's really seen in the crucifix. So the crucifix represents, among other things, our level of commitment to Christ. Yes, we believe in and trust what comes after the cross. We believe in the resurrection and that we too will be with Christ in heaven one day. However, on earth, we must make sacrifices to serve our God, our family, our neighbor, our nation. We will do so. 
The crucifix represents our pledge to live fully as Christians and our willingness to make all sacrifices required to fulfill the vocations to which God calls each man, woman, and child. Every Catholic should have a crucifix in their home, above their bed, or whatever they desire, and catch this, to remind them of the commitment required to serve God. Do you understand what they just did? And I'm not trying to make light of this. I say this because I think that last phrase there sums up the teaching and where they're going. And I truly believe that all of that just destroyed the only gospel that can save you. Because what they're saying is, when you think of Christ on the cross, you should think about how much you should commit to God and how hard you should work. No. No, that's the exact opposite of what Scripture says about Christ on the cross. When you think about Christ on the cross, you should think about your utter inability to bring anything to the table, that you are completely sinful and lost, and what Christ went through on the cross is what you deserve. And if you want to look at your own efforts, look to the cross, because that's where it all ends up, and you can't do it. But when you see the cross, you stop and you say, Jesus paid it all. Not, wow, I should really step it up. What a wonderful spiritual red bull. I look at the crucifix and say, I can do it. No, you look to the cross and you say, I can't. But he already did. That's grace. For Luther, and I hope for all of us, grace is all about what Christ did on on the cross. Yes, it shows our sin. Yes, it pays for that sin. That's grace. When Christ came off the cross, He was resurrected. He came in a new life and He says, that life I give to everyone who believes in Me. That's also grace. Let's not try a little bit harder. That's your dead and I will bring you back to life. And I will make you righteous. When we add our efforts to this equation, we cheapen and destroy what Christ did on the cross. It must be grace and grace alone. I'll finish with this. What do you need? Are you struggling and just need to work harder? Or are you lost, trapped, buried, and dead? I know what Scripture says, and I hope you do too, because the picture in Scripture is abundantly clear. But if you have or want to receive Christ and the grace that He freely gives, The king above all kings comes to that pile of rubble where we are dead. And he grabs us by the hand and he says, come, you're mine. And nothing will ever take that away from you. It is of his grace. And he declares you based on what Jesus did, the finished work of the cross, he declares you to be righteous. And each and every day, As we walk with Him, He is changing us. It is all of grace. Next week, we'll look more at the scriptural teaching on what grace is and how it works and the effects on our lives. And then in the following two weeks after that, we'll look at our response, the only response possible, the response of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we, through the authority of Your Word, 
Accept the truth that in our sins we are dead. That we are your enemies and we are under your wrath. And we don't just need a little encouragement. We don't need just a little enablement. We don't need some spiritual Red Bull to pick us up. None of that is enough. And it is not what you offer. And it is not what you require. What we need is for our death to be taken from us. We need the price and the wrath to be taken off of us. And you did so by sending your son to die in our place. That's grace. And I pray if there's anyone here who has never accepted that good news, that gospel declared by Scripture, may today be the day. May they, like Luther, say, I've been working so hard. I've tried so much on my own and it has all come to nothing. And now I see grace. And I accept it. Thank you for the grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. And that grace alone that saves us. In whose name we pray. Amen.